Our stories are what make us unique, but they're also what connect us as human beings. It's time to stop talking and start listening. This is You Talk, I'll Listen with Shannon Chapman. Being super close with my own mother and having a daughter myself, I can understand that unique mother-daughter bond. My daughter is like my little mini-me, and I can't imagine life without her. I also talk to my mom like multiple times a week, but my guest this week, Amy, didn't have the relationship, that relationship with her mother. Her mom was abusive, and the trauma of her childhood led her on a 20-year journey of mental health recovery. Amy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So what was your relationship with your mother like as a child? Well, my earliest memories of my mother was that she was very good at taking care of our physical needs, right? So I knew that she would feed me. I knew that I would have a warm bed and clothes. And if I was sick, she would take care of me um, and make sure my basic needs were met. And so those were, those were things I knew about my mom. It also became very apparent to me that my mom was not emotionally, mentally, and also not physically safe. So she, she had a very big personality, still does. It's one thing that I love about her. But she lacked self-control when it came to um, her emotions. Uh, so I never was really sure what was going to set her off, what was going to make her happy or please her or set her off. So there was this tug of war that I know my mother will feed me and clothe me. I know that she will bandage my wounds, but I'm also made aware that she is not safe because I'm not sure what trips the trigger for good or bad. So um, very early on, my relationship was scary with my mother. I wanted to be nurtured by her. So there were these moments of nurture, but it was a, it was a constant roller coaster. I was either being nurtured or I was being screamed at and didn't know it, or I was being spanked, but beyond what corporal punishment is, is to be, you know, it always went beyond that. And so I, I just never knew. So my relationship with my mom early on was one of um, confusion and fear. What do you think was the deeper issue behind why your mother became abusive? Well, over the years and actually talking to her, she has said that the deeper issue was that she hated herself. And, and that just makes me so sad. Even saying that, you know, that someone could have that kind of existence and just look at yourself in the mirror and hate yourself. Now, my mom's experience in life was not easy, Shannon. I mean, she she was raised in in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And her father was um, aggressive. He was mean. Um, her mother died when she was young. And her father 
ended up taking his own life before she was 13. So before she was 13, she had lost both parents tragically. She had a brother who struggled with mental illness as we know it now and wasn't available. So she was being moved around from family to family member, which just drove home this lack of self-worth. You know, no one, no one wanted her. Nobody wanted to take care of her. And she was compliant. Well, when that didn't work, you know, she became angry and defiant and thought, well, what is wrong with me? Right. So that, that self-hatred grew over the years. And I will say that the big trigger for her self-hatred as an adult was my little sister being born. She, when my little sister was born, the nurse that delivered my sister was so drunk that she suffocated my sister in the delivery room. So as a mother now of a child with special needs, now I knew about my child's special needs. I knew as much as medicine could determine before she came to me. I was still struggling with what I thought this child was going to be. So I cannot imagine being in the delivery room, being told your child is healthy, then being told your child has passed away, then being told your child is breathing again, that they got her breathing again 15 minutes later, but she's not going to be the same child you thought you were going to have, right? So now the, the rage and the anger is just triggered over how could this happen to me? How could this happen to my child? You know, all of those unknown fears emerge of how am I going to do this? And that really seemed to be the big trigger that brought about the violent abuse that happened from the age of five until I was 18. Wow. That is, that's a lot to go through. Right. One of the things that I'm realizing as an adult now, thinking back to my childhood and my parents, it was like, you don't realize when you're a child that your parents have issues too, and they mm -hmm. are just they're doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They are. And my mom did what she knew to do. And so in order for her to be a mother, control was the only thing that she understood. And so control for her was, well, I'm going to raise you to be the best possible human, even if I have to beat you up and beat out what I think is wrong right? I have a six-year-old. She's actually going to be seven tomorrow. And she's just starting to demonstrate her independence. I think that's a fair way of saying it. And um, as a mom, there sometimes I just want to blow back like, I do know more than you. I know this is a shocker. But my mom didn't have the capacity to say, this is Amy demonstrating independence. How can I train her? It was Amy is demonstrating independence. I need to control her. So that control rolled into abuse, over spanking, verbal abuse, trying to put me back in my place, right? Because she didn't know how to be anything but a cop. You know, and as a parent, we evolve into some different roles in our kid's life. And if we don't ever really leave that cop stage, this is where damage can happen because we eventually have to graduate from there. From what I understand and what I'm learning is that there does need to be a graduation from the cop stage. And my mom just, she didn't know how to do that. She had never been told that. And then on top of it, she was hating herself, hating her life, trying to keep my sister alive and take care of me. 
It was a very, very different existence than what she had expected her life to be. What effect did growing up like this have on you as an adolescent and like going into Mm -hmm. your evolution of becoming an adult? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, right as I was entering adolescence, my dad died. So my dad was, he was a very good man. And once he passed away, I think this, this is from what I understand from my own mental health journey that, you know, they, you can tend to set them into like saint mode, you know, and I kind of did that with my dad. I now know really through the practice of EMDR that my dad was a good man, but he did not protect me. He knew what was going on with my mother and didn't step in and, and protect me. So or very, very early on, I decided as a kid, this action kept happening. My mom was abusing me. There was no one to protect me. So I decided I have to protect myself. And that belief led to actions and those actions led to emotions. So as I was entering adolescence and I'm having all of this hormone changes and I'm having these big these big emotions I don't know what to do with. The only time I've seen anything done with these emotions, it is abusive, over the top, inconsistent. And so I was so terrified of my own emotions that when I felt them, I didn't know what to do with them. So I tended to be aggressive. Um, which brought a lot of shame on me. I, I never hurt my sister, but she was the one that got the brunt of my adolescent emotional experience. You know, so I would yell at her. I would um, maybe yank her by the arm when she wasn't doing what I wanted her to do. And I say this, I've never talked about this publicly. So I want everyone to know here that I do not condone this behavior. It was all I knew. It's what was being demonstrated to me. And as much as I didn't want to do it, I didn't know what else to do. I really didn't. And so I, as I was going into adolescence, my mom became more controlling because I was becoming more independent. So the abuse ramped up. It, beca- it went from spanking to dragging me by my hair through the, through the backyard when I tried to leave, run out the backyard and scream for help because I was just really afraid most days my mother was going to kill me. I mean, it was that kind of rage coming from her and kind of aggression. And so my adolescence were horrific. I was terrified. I lived in terror. My baby sister was having more and more seizures. And so my mom was so consumed with Catherine as any parent would be when you've got a child that cannot take care of themselves, that there is whole memories my mother has of me not in them. Like she can't even remember parts of my life because she was so enraged and consumed with my sister. And I felt that as an adolescent. I felt alone. Um, So I reached out where I could get attention, you know, and most of the time that was with male relationships. In order to protect myself, I would lie rather than ask for help. I would skip school. I skipped school a lot. Um, And that was during the time that like your parents really didn't know you were skipping school. You know what I mean? 
I had friends that would answer the phone and lie for me. You know, I really started to spiral into behaviors that were causing me to make decisions that were making big trouble for me. So although I never got into legal trouble, I had a lot of emotional trouble because I was kind of bouncing from boyfriend to boyfriend. I couldn't really keep friends because I didn't know how. People liked me, but I didn't know how to have like a real, loyal, committed, emotionally intimate relationship with someone. So my adolescents were lonely. Um, It was consumed with how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? There was a moment in my adolescence where I considered suicide. There was a moment in my adolescence where I considered harming my mother just to escape. I just was desperate to escape. My mother would not even let me work because she just thought that I would run away and not come home. So I was just confined. It was very controlling. I was desperate to escape. And I was really making decisions that didn't feel good to me, right? I I felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt as an adolescent. And that just followed me. That guilt and shame followed me for years. What started you on your mental health journey? Well, I got married very young, again, to escape. Soon as I could find someone that would give me a ring, I said yes. <laughs> you know, because that is the standard. No, it is not. No, it is not. Anyone listening to me, please do not make decisions out of that because it, it harmed me. And I ended up hurting someone else in the process too. And so I got married very young. I was 22 when I got married and I was just raging. I mean, I could go from zero to 6,000 in six seconds. I mean, it just was so terrifying. And, and it was like I didn't, ha- I didn't have an off switch. I didn't know how to turn it off. So um, I actually went to my very first therapist that I went to was a gentleman that had given me an assessment and some mental health assessment. I can't remember what it's called now. But it was the first time that I felt seen and known outside of my personal existence. Like this man sat in front of me and he read exactly what my inside was back to me. And then he said to me for the first time ever, he said, this is not your fault. That was the absolute pivotal moment that shifted my entire existence as a human. Him reading that to me and him looking at me and saying to me, this is not your fault, because that guilt and shame just followed me as though I really am a horrible person and I am not worthy to be seen and known by someone. And this is just how my life is going to be hidden and I'm just going to have to find a way to cope. So with his help, over the course of a three-day intensive mental health experience, I began to experience freedom for the first time. And so that is where I really found value in help. You know, I didn't really know anything about the mental health community. I was 22. I'm 44 now. So there you go. It's 22 years ago. We've come a very long way. And that, that, was, the, that was the tipping point. 
What have you encountered on your journey of healing? I have encountered so many different angles to this process. I have encountered really good therapists that said to me, once we achieve this desired outcome, you know, that you have, Amy, you will have to come up with a new desired outcome or you're going to have to go and come back when you need me again. This boundary, first of all, I'd never experienced boundaries. Um, That was the first thing I experienced in this healing journey was, wow, you can actually set a boundary and people will listen to you. Like people, that happens. So boundaries being demonstrated to me through this healing process. Also, someone saying, you can't co-depend on me, right? You cannot put your dependence on me. Um, I'm here to help you achieve this. And unless you tell me you want to achieve something else, you can't just keep coming to me and I'm going to keep taking your money because that lacks integrity. So the first things I learned right out of the gate from the mental health community and from my experience of healing was boundaries, something I'd never seen or heard about, codependence, and somebody saying you can't be codependent. But these things I had never heard or seen demonstrated. So now when, my, now when I start my healing journey, I've got this demonstration of a new way of being with people that I don't have to be abused. I don't have to abuse myself to be made worthy. You know, I don't have to go and do something to earn something. Right. And that is how my whole life was. I've got to earn your love. I've got to earn your attention. And if I don't do enough of something, guess whose responsibility it is? It's mine. Everything is my, even when I was being abused, I thought I must have done something here. So I'm going to take responsibility for you, abuser, and also for me being abused. So I was carrying this weight of, I have to be the protector, so I cannot, I absolutely cannot rock the boat because that could mean something really horrible will happen. So I couldn't speak up for myself. And now I've got this healing community saying, yes, you can. And we're going to show you what that looks like. So setting off on this journey as I started to enter into relationships with different angles of healing, you know, I needed emotional healing, uh, mental healing, mental health healing. I needed I even needed some physical healing just from the trauma of not tending to myself because unworthy people are not worthy of taking care of themselves. So there was that, there was that byproduct that needed to be attended to. And there was also the spiritual component. You know, I just was very much a broken vessel. You know, my body, my mind, my emotions, all because I really had determined and believed. I'm just not worthy of anything more than what I have. So the healing community demonstrated to me what it looks like to tend to oneself and not be selfish, to ask for help, and to set boundaries around that help. That, those were some, some big things I experienced in my healing journey. What would you say has been the most difficult thing? I'll tell you that the hardest thing for me for 20 years was the belief that I had to protect myself meant that I had to guard. I was always on guard. I was the watchman on the wall. I was always on guard. 
Well, what that meant for my mental health and my emotional health and my relational health with other people was that I was always guarding myself. So part of that that guardianship, if you will, that I placed on myself when my guardian checked out, I became my guardian. Part of that looked like me holding that guardian hostage because if I was to let her out of the cage and actually say, let's try to understand you, like what, what was in your background that could have you do this to a child? That felt so scary to me because it meant I had to come out from behind the great wall of protection and look at the enemy that I had created, right? My mother had I had made her an enemy because that's how you guard yourself. There must be a threat for you to feel the need to guard, right, and protect. So that meant I had to no longer say, you're my enemy. And I had to say, what happened? But you know what's interesting is that I did that, but how I came out from behind that wall was with a lot of boundaries. So by speaking out and saying, in order for me to leave this walled experience I've, I've made with you, I need this from you, right? So being able to articulate what I needed from her and expect it and not retreat when she didn't give it to me, but be able to just stand in my, in my own self and say, I'm not going to go back behind that wall. I want to remain vulnerable because it was in my vulnerability that I was really starting to experience freedom. But it took me 20 years to actually break the wall down and start a conversation with my mother. This was the hardest thing. I could not talk to her. So I would see her or talk to her once a year when I would go and see my little sister once I became an adult. And it was I was terrified the whole time. And when I finally stepped out from behind the wall and I started the conversation with her and I started the process of forgiveness with her, she started to become more honest about what she did. Because here's the truth that I have learned. My greatest fear as someone who was abused was that no one would believe me. So when I would sit with my mother and say, don't you remember when you held a knife to my head or put that sawed-off shotgun to my face because you didn't like the skin tone of the young man I was dating in high school. Do you remember that, mom? No, I don't remember anything like that. That was debilitating to me because immediately as the responsibility taker and the guardian, it was, have I made this up? Am I, I must be losing my mind. I must have made this up. And so 20 years of having to overcome the stories I had told myself, I am wrong and she is right, and that I can't talk to her about this, um, that was the longest journey for me, for sure. What would you say is the biggest breakthrough that you had? Man, I feel like so much of my breakthroughs were so evolutionary. Like there was such a journey to them and then there would just be a sudden like bursting through, you know, the barrier. I will say one of the greatest things that happened to me was actually emotionally releasing my mother from that cage I had built and actually forgiving her, like really forgiving her, saying if she never changes, if she never admits what she did, I still forgive her. 
But see, I was waiting for the conditions to be met before I did that. And it was me that lived in that cage. She was free. She was free. It was me that had been caged over all those years of waiting for her to meet conditions before I forgave her. So that was the very first thing. The second big, big breakthrough for me was the practice of EMDR. So I've always had really good therapists, but it's all been around talk therapy, which has been very valuable to me. But I found a therapist that partnered talk therapy and EMDR as well as some other tools. And that helped me actually go into the memories, those traumatic memories, and see them as they actually happened and tell myself I'm okay and disconnect the emotion from the memory, not forget the memory. Just disassociate and disconnect the spinning wheel of emotion that kept getting triggered every time something else happened. And it wasn't my mom that was triggering it. It was other experiences that were triggering it, which was spinning me back to protector, spinning me back to responsibility taker. You know, in some of the ways that showed up for me was... I own my own business and my work is very intimate with my clients. It's dealing a lot with their businesses and their money. And, you know, this is a very, these are very personal things. And I would overwork as to gain their approval. I would step into their arena of responsibility and I would take the responsibility back and I would do it, thinking. This is going to get me worth and this is going to this is going to make me more valuable to you. Well, it did not. <laughs> it actually only crippled them because I took responsibility away from them that needed to be kept there. Another way that this showed up for me was in the guardian role that that protector role is that I would believe it was my job to protect my children from making some of the ma- same mistakes I was doing. So I was interrupting their discovery phase of life. Instead of letting it happen, I was intercepting it because I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to to make a decision that could harm you, right? And so once EMDR stepped into the process and I started to see where these things had come from and actions that would happen that would trigger an emotion that would trigger the belief or vice versa. I'm not a mental health professional. I just know those three things happen in my process. Once I could see the pattern, it really has helped me stop it in the moment. Like, okay, Amy, what is actually happening? Mm -hmm. Your child is safe. She's in a safe environment and she's exploring. This is okay. This, she's okay. You're okay. Everything's okay. Let her make the mess. Let her go up and down the stairs. Let her fall off the couch onto the cushion. She's going to be okay, right? She has to learn these things. And so it really, I didn't realize how these beliefs are just so easily triggered and then they affect an action and an emotion and you're just stuck in this triangle that you can't get out of. And EMDR really, really has given me a powerful, powerful tool to stop that cycle. And I have, and it's almost been instantaneous for me. Like things, Shannon, that I thought I would just always have to live with are completely gone. 
completely gone. Never there one day and gone the next. It has been the most profound experience, both of those things, letting my mother out of her cage through forgiveness and EMDR. Can you explain a little bit about what EMDR is? Yes. So I'm going to explain it as I as I understand it, which I'm not trained. I know nothing about the technical side of it. So as the as the one experiencing it, my therapist was a pediatrician for 33 years, retired, and then went back and got her um, degree and uh, certification with this EMDR process. That's how much she believes in it. And so we started with talk therapy, you know, gaining trust and really understanding what's going on. So as I understand it, our brain can hold an emotion and attach it to a memory. So most often what happens in our neuro, the the brain part of our existence, is that the brain acts as an overprotective parent. Our brain is such a sophisticated system. I'm so fascinated with it. I know very little about it, but I do understand uh, that it does act as an overprotective parent. So when we trigger a feeling that the brain has determined is negative, because we have had a negative response to it, then it remembers that. So the next time we're in a situation that triggers that emotion again, it triggers that overprotection. What was happening for me is I would be in a situation like a work situation, and maybe I had the feeling that this project wasn't going the way the client wanted it to go. Right. So the belief was you better get to work uh, adding value or they're not going to find you valuable and they're going to fire you. So then what would happen is, which has never happened, thank goodness, but my insides made me believe that if there was any hint of them not being happy. So if there was any unpleasant reaction from them, the belief was I haven't done enough. I haven't given enough value. So I need to get to work and I need to make something happen here. And so my brain would say, okay, this flood of emotion would come in to my body and the brain would start to trigger protection. And it, this was just a cycle over and over and over again. So I was, I had bouts of anxiety. I would have never, ever told you that I struggled with anxiety till I had seen this therapist. No one had ever seen that in me but high levels of anxiety, almost to the point that it was so normal that I was like living with it and no one really knew that I was living with it. And so it triggered anxiety. And it was amazing to understand how when you can take your brain and help it go back and revisit that memory and associate a new emotion with the memory, That memory now no longer has the ability to trigger this flood of emotion and anxiety. The brain is so powerful. I mean, I'm right there in the room that it happened in. I can see it. I can smell the smells. I can see the light of day or the the lamp in the corner. I mean, it is as though I am sitting there in the room where the abuse is happening. And then she walks me through a process of watching from the outside in. 
So staying as a spectator of what I'm seeing happening in that memory. So I'm watching my mother abuse me. I'm watching my mother verbally tear me down. I'm watching her put a gun to my head and threaten my life if I don't break up with this young man, right? I'm watching all of that. And as I'm watching it, the emotions I'm experiencing in this memory are at the forefront. And she keeps walking me through the emotions until I can actually separate the emotion from the memory and add a new emotion to it. So I'm in the heat of this fear, anxiety. I'm crying. I'm very, I mean, I'm there. This is happening to me as the spectator. So I might be seeing myself be abused, but now I'm seeing, okay, I actually am okay. And this is going to be okay because what's happening in that moment is I don't know that I'm going to be okay. Now there is a new belief of I might be being fired, but I'm going to be okay. And there's no anxiety. I might be hated by someone and there might be something that looks like a threat coming at me. I'm going to be okay. So the emotional part of my brain stops spinning and now the logical part of my brain can actually kick in and help me. Most of the time when we're feeling anxiety and we're feeling the height of these big memories and we're flooded with anxiety or depression or whatever we might be dealing with in the moment, most often as adults, our logical brain is trying to kick in and tell us everything's going to be okay. But the emotional brain is like, no, it's not because I'm associated with this memory over here from 1982 and you're not okay. So you're not okay now. And it is the most powerful. I probably did a horrible job explaining this, but it is my experience. That is that is how I understand it. And that's how I've walked through it. What is your relationship like with your mom now that you've done this work? Well, it is awkward. <laughs> I realize how different. I'm telling you, there is nothing I wanted more than a friendship with my mom. You know, like what you described, talking to your mom multiple times a week. Man, that sounds like a dream. Now, I will say that there has been other members of my family, females specifically, that have stepped up. Um, I have an aunt in particular, and man, I have a beautiful mother-daughter-like relationship. She is my friend. She is a mentor. She is a confidant. She is fun, you know, and that's what I wanted with my mom. And I've had to come to accept my mom doesn't have the capacity. She doesn't know how. So how can I accept her where she is? My mother has taken personal responsibility. My mother has apologized. My mother has openly told me things that she had said she didn't do. She knew she had done them. So that shame and guilt is no longer there. But my mom and I are very different. So I honor my mother where I can, right? Just for the sheer fact that she pushed something the size of a watermelon out of something the size of a straw. And uh, I am grateful for that. So I start there. Okay, what can I be grateful for? And where can I meet you today? So I talk to her where she's at. You know, she talks to me where I'm at. Um, she understands that for me, trust was broken. And um, so a very wise man said this to my husband, actually. He said, look, trust is lost in buckets and it's earned in drips. And so, you know, I'm walking through the dripping phase of who is my mom to me now? 
I can honestly say I don't see her as the villain. She's not the person that I had decided she was. She has pains and wounds and experiences I will never have that I can't understand and relate to. Our relationship is respectful. My goal is family unity. So that unity sometimes requires conversations that are hard and boundaries that need to be drawn. And so far, she has respected those, you know, whereas before she had not. And so that's encouraging. Is there anything positive that you can say has come from that trauma of your childhood? I am much more in tune with humans around me. You know, I can be in the grocery store and every person is valuable to me. I can see people in a much different way. You know, I don't see them as the person that I see, but I see what might be behind their eyes or why can't they look at us when we walk by them or things like that. There's t- there tends to be a greater empathy and compassion for my fellow humans that I don't, no one taught me. That truly came out of these experiences. I can also say that I have learned what I don't want to be. So I have done and I stay very closely connected to accountability. I'm quick to take personal responsibility, um, which is very scary and feels very vulnerable to me because I don't want to be, I don't want to deceive myself. I don't want there to be self-deception that I'm okay and it's okay for me to treat people like garbage because it's just my personality. I want to be able to care for others and love them in a way that tells them the truth, that exercises self-control, that draws boundaries for them and for me, and that allows me to be compassionate. And that's what these traumatic experiences gave me, was how do I want to love other people? Because it was lacking for me. Because really, my mom didn't know what love was. And a big part of love is self-control. It is reserving what you want to do to somebody because you're not getting what you want from them. And it's also considering the other person first. You know, this is what love says. I'm going to consider you before I consider myself. I'm going to esteem you higher than myself. And at the same time, I'm also going to be self-controlled where I'm going to consider what's happening before I react so that we can stay in relationship and that I can put love ahead of my own agenda. Those are some of the big positives that that this whole thing has given me. What's your best piece of life advice for people who are listening? To pay attention to your own insides. Don't question if you're wrong. You know, like if you're in a situation and you're feeling anxiety, there is a reason for that. Pay attention because I ignored it thinking, oh, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And no, I was not the problem all the time. Sometimes I, I, and I do, I make a lot of mistakes, but I've also learned to take responsibility for myself and let the other person take responsibility for themselves and also ask for help. If I can't get that anxiety down, that the way my therapist has showed it to me is kind of like a thermometer. If I feel it rising and I can't get it down, I don't have the tools to get it down, ask for help. Help is the greatest power we have. It is not weakness. It is power. Help 
is power. That is what I have learned. And I would tell you, ask for help, stay in the help when it's hard, confront the parts that don't make sense with someone that you trust. Just don't ignore them. That's what I would say is don't ignore these internal triggers and write them off as nerves or it's you or you're overreacting. Those are stories and they are not true. Wow. I feel like I just had a therapy session here, Amy. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> oh, because I suffer from anxiety too. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah, I I had no idea. I had no idea. I lived with it for so long. I, and now that I don't live with it, wow, what a different existence I have. Trying to get there. You're you are on your way, my friend. You are on your way. I appreciate you and your time. And like I said, this was really like therapy for me. So I'm sure that the listeners will get lots of jewels from things that you said. Good. I hope so. Stay tuned for the mic drop moment. Enjoy what you heard today? Help us get the word out. Give You Talk a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. You might find your review reposted on our social media. Thanks for listening. The mic drops next. Like several of my guests this season... Amy had a traumatic childhood. Her relationship with her mother has always been strained, and for a long time, Amy was angry. It took her 20 years to finally, truly forgive her mom for the abuse and fear she introduced into Amy's childhood. But once she did it, it was freeing. All of the anger and resentment she had been holding on to kept her captive until that moment, and she made a great point. Amy was the one who was stuck, not her mom. Amy was the one experiencing anxiety and walking around angry. Her mom was not. The only way she was able to move forward and have peace with that relationship was true forgiveness by letting go of the conditions and terms she was holding her mother to. Another thing she realized in those 20 years of healing is that her mother was not the villain she had made her out to be. Her mother was doing the best she could while dealing with some pretty tough trauma of her own. Think about it. Her mom lost both of her parents before the age of 14. She went from home to home after that. Later, she had a traumatic birthing experience. And she lost a spouse. And those were just what I heard mentioned. There could have been more than that. She had a lot of stuff to process without the necessary tools and support. As I deal with anxiety, I sometimes have days where doing everyday things feels overwhelming. It makes me wonder what message my children are getting about me when I'm short with them, or I don't want to play with them because I'm just trying to make it through my day. Am I projecting my issues onto them? 
Are they learning negative things as the norm? Amy's story was full of powerful learning experiences that we can all take with us. I applaud her for sticking with the healing for so long and continuing to peel back the layers of the onion within her life. We have no idea what people are dealing with on a daily basis. Someone who lashes out in anger or is quick to react negatively may be struggling with something. We have to be more present in people's lives and pay attention to the things that aren't being said. Most of us, including myself, are so quick to answer good when asked how we're doing. But if you take a closer look, we may be crying out for help. If you're that person, like Amy said, asking for help is a sign of strength, not weakness. To everyone else, give those people some grace. They need it. Heck, we all do at some point. On the next episode, which is the season three finale, we're going to get some updates on some of our guests from the past two seasons. As I heard another podcaster say, life be lifin'. And we have some amazing updates. If you've been with me since season one, you won't want to miss this. If you're just joining the Utah fam, you're going to want to binge seasons one and two, which are available at utalk2020.com. And that's the letter U. The link is in the show notes. Catch you on the next one. Grace and blessings. Thank you.